UX Podcast Episode 102. Hi, and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbull. And we're balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. Today, um, we have got two interviews lined up for you. Yeah, uh, two interviews recorded at UXLX. Uh, with uh, the first one up is Adrian Howard. Um, he did uh, a workshop about story mapping. Um, yeah, he he's regularly speaks and teaches about mm. um, integrating lean UX and agile methods. Um, and he, yeah, his workshop um, at UXLX was user story mapping. And he told us some really interesting stuff about the difference between customer journey mapping and story mapping, which was actually new to me. Mm. And how you can how you can do create a story map and slice it in different ways. Yeah. And then f- second half of the show, um, we have an interview with uh, Mike Beersley, who also had a workshop at UXLX. Yeah. Um, was which was called Web Analytics for User Experience. Um, Mike. Um, pushes the point that web analytics are a really important um, part of the user research toolkit. Yeah, and this is something that I think everybody should be paying more attention to because I see a lot of UXers paying too little little attention to it, uh, which is worrisome. I mean, there are numbers-focused people and there are behavior-focused people, and we should pay more attention to numbers. And he, um, he just was about some of the ways you can get started with that and how you can turn it into maybe the most rewarding aspect of your UX work. <laughs> nice. Okay, let's jump in. UX Podcast is supported by Loop 11, an easy-to-use online user testing toolset. UX Podcast listeners, your first full-featured usability test is on the house when you go to loop11.com slash uxpodcast. That's loop11.com slash uxpodcast. Okay, Adrian Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, you've done a workshop at UXLX. I have. It was on Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, user story mapping. Wednesday, but... Was it Wednesday? Yes, of yeah, course, yes. Tuesday wasn't Tuesday, even conference I was, I day. I wasn't even here, wasn't <laughs> <laughs> No, we were flying in. These, these conferences, were you there? I, can't I have no idea where I was. <laughs> <laughs> these, these things mm. are so intense, you mm. kind of blur the days together after a while. Yeah, right. um, but yes, it was uh, a workshop on user story mapping. Yeah, and I was I was actually um, part of your workshop on the <laughs> the afternoon uh, on Wednesday. On, on, <laughs> on Wednesday, yeah, I was there by myself on Tuesday. No, no bugger turned up, um, but um, but it was it was a good workshop, and it it, um, it got plus points from me because it was so practical. And that's um, it's it's, it's nice when you actually do things in yeah. workshops. Uh, downside is I don't have any notes on my computer, <laughs> but that's all right because yeah, I've I've got them in my head and on a piece of paper. Right. We talked a fair bit about story mapping previously. We, we, sometimes we custom, call them customer journey maps, mm-hmm. user journey mapping. Uh, what's the correct term? Is that? Um, well, I think they're all slightly different terms, I think. Okay. Um, or at least are things that are produced with slightly different purposes. I think uh, journey maps, um, uh, and this, uh, you know, cus- customer stories, those things like that are often produced by the UX team as a deliverable to other people mm-hmm. sort of thing. They're, they're a kind of a result of research work or a 
uh, a guess on what a good workflow will be. Yeah, they're like um, a finished product. You know, an informed, you know, an informed yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, whereas a user story mapping is more of a living document that the the whole product team uses and changes, um, and it's it's related to that kind of customer journey, um, but it's talking about the things that need to be built to make that journey happen, and it helps helps the everyone in the team get aligned on that journey and the things that need to be done to make that mm-hmm. journey happen. Sometimes the challenge of the story map, I think, is actually what you're saying there is getting everyone in an agreement about mm-hmm. what it is, what it means, how do you use it. Uh, how do you approach that problem with actually getting team, mem- team members online uh, or on board with actually understanding what it's used for? Um, by getting everybody who, who needs to use it involved in its creation. Um, mm-hmm. It's very much mm-hmm. not something that just the product manager does mm-hmm. or... Um, just the user researcher does. Uh, it's something, it's a practice where you have product managers and developers and sometimes end users and customers um, involved in understanding that journey and, and the things that need to be in, involved in producing that. Mm. Um, because everyone is there at creation time, as it were, it's much easy, much easier to get everyone aligned on what needs to be done and everybody understanding what kind of is more or less urgent in that list of things that need to be done. Mm. I think the workshop actually exemplifies that quite well in that we're, we're, we're just strangers who meet and get put into groups and mm. the task that we had in the workshop was to, um, to do a, a story map for buying an airline ticket mm. um, and I had Edith who was the, <laughs> the uh, more experienced traveller um, and then we as a group had to write down the full story all the process, all the steps that we can imagine in mm. buying this ticket and then we Group together, even we come together as bigger groups and had to discuss, and we 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 all bought into that game space really quickly of, yeah. of like right, we are that person. We're doing this journey. How do we group together our mm. divergent opinions on how this story unfolds? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that is user story mapping is really good at is is helping everyone get alignment, um, especially if you're still in organisations that are dealing with kind of requirement specs kind of you know and that, that big fat binder of, of this is what the product is going to be um, you know very kind of not really very agile agile companies um, that that process of getting everyone to, to discuss the details forces people to be a bit more explicit about what they're talking about mm-hmm. and it shakes out the places where people have different interpretations yeah. of the same requirement or are missing one thing and and or adding a new feature for another um, and that gets everyone to, to just get that up on the wall in front of everybody and up for discussion yeah. Yeah. It, it forces certain things to the surface yes yeah. it, it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing as you know if, if folk have heard of kind of Kanban one of the things that is about it's about kind of visualising work and visualising um, the process and that makes it much more easy to discuss and, yeah. in, and it's that same kind of thing that story mapping helps us mm. do I think another another thing that was, was fascinating to see during the workshop was how not only did did um, mapping the whole thing out lift up 
parts of the process of the story that maybe you'd forgotten about. Also, the the placement of things across the story, how it varied mm. from person to person. That you know, one person might think, "Oh well, of course she's going to do, or he, he's going to do that there." Mm. So else goes, "No, absolutely nowhere. They're going to do that here." Mm. Then the other says, "They're not going to do that at all." Yes. <laughs> and so that was one of the things with the uh, booking the ticket. Mm. Um, one of us said, um, "Well, no. Well, if she's travelling two, three times a month, her, she's going to just mail the travel agency, and they're going to fix it all for them. Mm. She's not going to be involved in the website mm. whatsoever." Yeah, and it, and it's those sort of things, and especially where you have um, people can often have very strong opinions about how something mm-hmm. works, and and be in there, and, you know, not they're not not having opinions for the sake of it. You know, they they have genuinely had a bunch of experiences that say this particular thing is what everyone does, um, but someone else will have a different set of experiences, yeah. and um, the people who've gone off and do the, done the user research will have you know, some actually informed insights from different groups and getting all those people in the same room, making those things explicit, mm. um, making sure everyone is um, understanding the same thing where they read the word on the mm. post-it notes or the virtual board that you're using um, can help shake down all those things and get a much, much, mm. much more aligned team if it persists. And even even if it doesn't persist as a document, it helps, it helps people keep that alignment as the project progresses because they remember those earlier conversations and disagreements. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit then about the, the, the later part of the process here, how you'd, how you'd go from a, um, a, a story or the initial um, story map mm-hmm. um, and then take the step into a backlog or a or production of starting to do stuff with it. Well, I think the, the um, one of the points I made in the workshop is that I don't think there is kind of one true way of doing it. Mm. Um, you know, story mapping is a, is a, is a really useful technique um, in many different ways. You can use it uh, kind of as a, as a kind of discovery process where you are um, very much aligned on kind of understanding a customer journey for the first time. Maybe you're bringing stuff in from, in from user research and you know, product manager's idea of what the product might be and talking about alignment there. Or you can use it as very much a kind of we understand what's happening completely in the customer flow and we're just talking about kind of prioritizing work. Um, but the, the basic concept is that um, you, know, you have the customer journey aligned along the top and along the vertical dimension, you, you slice things in other ways. Um, a common way is a, to slice it is around um, kind of the value to the customer sort of thing. What, what, is, what is the smallest thing, you know, what's the minimum we need to deliver at the top? Um, you know, in the case of like the flight example, that's often something like kind of, you know, choose a destination um, and a date um, and buy a ticket. You know, you, know mm-hmm. you, you don't need to to travel you don't need to assign seats you might not need all the information on the thing or you might even just go you know go to the airport to buy the ticket there you yeah. know there, there's there's very little that you need to do and then the layer underneath that would be how do we make that experience better and, and flesh it out more and the layer under that would be how we flesh that out a bit more mm-hmm. and then you can start then delivering slices a slice left to right is always an entire customer journey it's always a valid experience um, um, and so you know every time you deliver a slice you'll be making that experience better um, 
but equally there are other ways of slicing it. People often slice around kind of primary and secondary persona, for example. You have your primary persona at the top and the secondary persona as a, as a, as a kind of chunk underneath. And then mm. you can think about, okay, what's in common between our persona? How do we focus on the primary persona and yet support the secondary persona? Right. Um, uh, another dimension is around confidence, possibly in the things that we're talking about. We're very confident that the customer has these needs and we're less confident that the customer has these other needs in a journey and you can then start looking at that and going okay we can start delivering the slices of the customer journey that we're confident about and the slices that we're less confident about we can go away and do user research we can go away and do product experiments mm. um, the whole lean startup lean ux stuff uh, and use that as a cue as about what what are what are our kind of assumptions that we're least confident about mm. and we have those are the ones that we should go investigate next yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying really is that there's no set template about how the map is supposed to look in the end when you're yeah. first but done with it. It's more like a work in progress and people actually contribute to how you should slice yeah, it. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the, the best way to use story mapping is, a, is as a persistent artifact. So it's something that sits on the team, team wall all the time or in whatever um, digital system that you have. And, it, and it's there as something that people refer to on the, all the time that people can make. Uh, informed decisions about as people discover stuff during the product development process, mm. as people always do. You know, there is always that thing that is suddenly much more complicated or much more simple than you originally thought. There is always the um, the client request or the customer request that comes in that you didn't know about before and needs to be added into the system. Mm. And if it's if it's there, if the whole entire customer journey that you're building is there on the wall, uh, and sometimes it might be more than one story map. You might be looking at developing multiple journeys at once, or you might be looking at different aspects yeah. of the system, like you know a, a story map for the administrators and a story map for the end users. Um, but you can then introduce that new thing into the existing journeys and see that okay you know yes we can add that here but that means this thing pushes down the list um, but you're still focused on the journey as a whole rather than what c can happen with more traditional agile backlogs is where you have just a list of prioritized story and you go well it's more important than that story um, but that individual story doesn't you know means that an entire customer journey doesn't quite work mm. um, so having that much more um, big picture thing um, around the thing that you, the end outcome that you're trying to produce, uh, means you make fewer of those kind of prioritization and scoping errors during the project. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that you can't use story mappers. I've seen people use story mapping kind of as one off. You have a story mapping exercise, then just use that as a prioritization of the backlog and go away. That's still useful. Um, that still can still help you work through a lot of problems. Indeed, what I've seen some people do is when they've had problems with an existing backlog, is, is and they've never done a story mapping exercise, what they do is then take everything off that backlog and put it into a story map, try and make a customer journey out of it, and then they'll suddenly see that there'll be like 30 or 40 stories that actually have nothing to do with the primary thing that they're trying to build, and they, you know, they seemed like really important things, but when you put it into the larger picture, they suddenly see that they're less important and can be you know, pushed out to the next release. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to, um, to finish off, maybe um, you could give some tips on, on, on digital tools that would help host your story. Um, this, this is a bad thing to ask me because I'm really <laughs> rubbish at remembering <laughs> names and URLs. Um, I'll, Jeff Patton, who's written a really good book on user story mapping, which I should pimp, that's published by O'Reilly's. O'Reilly's? Mm. O'Reilly. Oh, right, yeah. um, that's a really excellent book, and that mentions a couple of tools. Um, you can do it in Jira. Uh, there's, I think, 
the Jeff Patton's company has has a side product that um, does some stuff with story mapping. Uh, you can do it with things like Board Thing and yeah. Murally, um, you know, any other kind of virtual stickies, whiteboard things. Um, I've, I've at one occasion did a really greasy hack where we were just uh, screen shared between two people and used the MacOS Stickies app. Um, wow, yeah, uh, it works. Whatever works yeah. is, is generally my response on, on virtual things. I'm sure you could torture Trello into doing it if you, if you, if you applied <laughs> enough effort to it. Mm. Um, it's what, a, what are some of the challenges of using an online? It's all the usual challenges of remote stuff. Yeah. Um, it's, it's harder to... It's harder to get multiple people collaborating on the same thing i think it's harder to have those those breakout conversations about particular areas and features um it's actually harder to see the big picture i've seen i've seen story maps get really really big like um like five or six meters long of post-it notes um and at the end it's often less because you look at that large picture and go actually that slice there is more important so you kind of you you slice it along the horizontal dimension mm. as well as the vertical dimension and you focus on part of the customer journey um but getting there involves having quite a quite a lot of information out there on the wall um and and looking at those those big picture things can be i think quite hard on on digital tools and i'm, I'm personally still still looking for the 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 wonderful solution mm-hmm. to that I've yet found yet yet to find it. Great. Thank you very much, Adrian, for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank Okay, so some of the stuff I love about what Adrian is saying is that there is no right way to do it and there is no right way to slice it. I mean it all depends. And so it's really about keeping the story map alive and making sure everybody's involved in creating it. And just giving people a common goal, a common terminology, uh, put it up on the wall, make sure everyone's involved mm. in mapping it. But to be honest, though, mm. I, I don't think he even was pushing the fact you need to keep it alive. It's good if you can keep it alive. Mm. But the, the one of the take-homes I got from that chat was that it's possibly even enough in some project situations just to use it as a as, for leveling the playing field. Yeah. You know, that you said that mentioned just then about the com- common communication or common language, com- getting agreement yeah. on certain aspects or at least being aware of certain disagreements. Yeah, he did have an example that he, he'd seen, seen others using it just f- as a one-off mm. yeah. thing. Uh, although he also used the term persistent artifact, which I like. Yes. It, it's actually always there. You can't and, and get it, rid of it. And it helps you make informed decisions mm. about uh, the development uh, forward, mm. uh, what priorities uh, you have and what you need to learn more about. Uh, where, where are the black spots or the gray spots in, in uh, what you know about your users or what you need to know about your users and what they are failing to do. Mm. I don't know how many times I've said I, in this show as well, it, put stuff up on the wall, make sure it's on the wall. And when it comes to actually doing that, I fail in doing it. And I absolutely fail in keeping these, these uh, artifacts updated. Uh, we, we should try to do it uh, like in the beginning of a project, but then we should also bring it forward after every sprint. And I think actually in this project I've been in for a while now, almost two years, it's only in the last couple of months that we've actually framed that we have like, and that's another thing that he brought up, that you can have different, I mean, several story maps based on the different users. Like the administrators have one, the end users have one, the editors have another one. Uh, And make sure that you actually go in and ensure that all those different people have their stuff uh, in place to actually be able to, perform the whole journey because mm. that's another thing he brings up that l- having the journey 
uh, or the story map uh, on the wall helps you realize when you're looking at, like when you're working with Scrum, you work with stories and you prioritize stories. But sometimes if you don't have one story, you won't be able to actually f- complete the whole journey as a user. And if you can't do that, then the priorities are wrong often when you're mm. look, looking at, oh, but the users need this? Yes, they need that. And that's really important. Mm. But if we don't have this small thing that we don't have prioritized, they won't even get to that step. And so with having the whole map on, on, on the wall helps you see those uh, fallacies in your reasoning. Mm. I, I loved the whole thing about slicing. I hadn't really thought about you know, that aspect yeah. of the story mapping. I, I'd, I'd thought of it mm. more as a, as a linear mm. tool to work out where A is and where Z yeah, is exactly, yeah. and, and to, to put some information in between so you know mm. which way you're walking. Um, I hadn't really considered mm. that you could slice it in so many different mm. ways to lift out different things or, mm. or at least... Act, turn it into different approaches maybe mm-hmm. to, to a project um, that you could do it by I think you mentioned the, the personas or, or target audiences right. um, I was thinking you could also, you could also mm-hmm. even do it by um, context mm-hmm. um, depending on how the story varies or whether it's a, 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 an entire story when you split, sliced it like that true really interesting if anyone listening is familiar with um, the book Mental Models by Indy Young that's actually very close to this. And yes. the, the, that book is wrongly titled. I mean, mental models can mean so many things, but mm. there she actually has the process of mapping out a user's journey and then uh, like at the top of a paper and under each of those steps in a journey, how do we help the user accomplish those tasks that they're u- doing as part of their journey? And immediately you see the gaps. You see, we have a lot of stuff over here, but we don't have anything over here. Maybe we have too much stuff that we can get rid of and we have other stuff that we need to add. And it, it's... So visual and so easy to get everyone on board and under- understanding, actually. Yeah. Let's move on to our second interview of this week's yes. show. Yes, Real Data uh, Analytics with Mike Beasley. Hello and welcome, Mike Beasley. Oh, hello. It's good to be here. You've um, you've been one of the, the, the chosen few that's done two. They've done the workshop twice um, at this um, oh. conference. I d- uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know to call it lucky or... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, you've been punished by doing yes. it twice. <laughs> Web analytics for user experience. Oh, yes. It's um, a topic that I think, it, I think is super important. Um, uh, we need to, as user experience professionals, you know, we need to gather data about users wherever we can get. You know, we we ignore data sources at our own peril. Um, so, you know, web analytics is just one of the places where we can get data. And you know, it's it, it's its own distinct data source. It has um, good parts and bad parts. You know, and it's uh, part of a. And so, it should be part of a well-rounded uh, user research toolkit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, I'm, I'm a big fan of using. I, I do a fair bit of work with um, <coughs> with analytics and, um, um, and and using that data to try and help the design process. Um, I, I don't do so much of the of the traditional analytics where you're reporting mm-hmm. on metrics. I do I do the research using analytics. Oh yes. Yeah, you can. Um, the, the the kinds of usage are very distinct, you know. Mm. So I lived in the in the marketing world uh, a few years back, the last place that I worked, and you definitely do different kinds of activities in marketing. It's um, you're much more oriented around regular reporting on you know, the the efficacy of marketing efforts. Mm. Um, user research tends to be more focused on answering specific uh, questions. Uh, you you have more one-off analyses that you may you may do, uh, you know, as opposed to generating specific reports. Uh, over over time, mm. 
I think this is the, the also the, the 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 way you can mine the data with seg well, segmentation to to peel off things to uncover behavioral traits mm. uh, across the site. Oh yes, it's it's it. it the more you dig in, though, mm. the the the, the, uh, the the capabilities are just are are, are very exciting. Um, it's uh, you can look at uh, analytics. Uh, well, and, you know, it's a it's an easy way to get at you know some answers to get at evidence. Um, it is a, a, a hypothesis generation machine yeah. because you know you, when you uncover data. You know, you're, you're you're learning certain aspects of user behavior. You're learning what people did, but you mm. don't necessarily know. Well, you don't know why they did it. Mm. You can tell stories about the data. You can you you, you know you, you you can form a hypothesis about why people did things, but ultimately, it's up to you to go out and validate those hypotheses through mm. other research methods. Mm. So you know, analytics just leads to all sorts of questions mm. about why. Mm. <laughs> That's a really good point yeah. of using it as. Um, yeah, using it as your basis to, to ask further questions, um, hypotheses. That's really... I think good. a lot of user experience designers are kind of wary and afraid of getting into, analy and into analytics. Um, a fair few people really don't touch it at all that I, I know of. Mm. It's like, why is that, do you think? My take on it is that um, user experience profession has its roots in... Uh, human-computer interaction and academic discipline uh, made up of cognitive psychology and computer science and some other stuff. You know, as an academic discipline, oh, it's very numbers-oriented. You know, it's all about experimentation, quantitative data. Mm -hmm. But uh, as the field professionalized in the 1990s, you know, with the spread of the Internet, the spread of, like, computers everywhere, we, we had an inrush of people into the what became the user experience profession from various disciplines, you know, visual design, technical communication, you know, and, and these folks did not necessarily have a, a wealth of experience in quantitative uh, data. Mm. Um, and, you know, the pressures of working in industry often leads to, you know, not worrying so much about numbers as just, you know, trying to uh, get fast. <clears throat> fast answers mm. uh, to, to, to questions with the small sample sizes. So I, uh, I think it's the case that we, you know, drifted as a profession, we drifted away from numbers, but the, the, the tools for getting at quantitative data have improved greatly over the last 10 years. Mm. There are more uh, resources out there, you know, more books, more people writing on the subject of using quantitative data, not just analytics. Mm. So I see it as a... Um, a, a, a rising topic within, within the field. Right. I know a lot of people are drifting towards, well, I, I want to learn more about human behavior, and they go towards psychology. But going towards analytics and statistics, that's like you need a different mindset for that. But I think I'm, what I want to stress here is the importance of what you were be beginning to say there about you find what, what's the problem with the side. You build a hypothesis with the data, and then you go out and do the other stuff and learn about the behavior w in your research. But I think you need to think about where it all fits into your workflow as a US user experience designer. I think um, one thing I've noticed, I mean, yes, you're right, there's a lot of mm. UXs that just don't want to touch analytics mm. at all. But I've also noticed there's, there's a bunch of ones that dive in a little bit too readily or too easily and don't necessarily understand what they're reading. And I think this is one of the, the dangers, actually, because analytics, um, it's, it's zeros and ones, and mm -hmm. it's very defined. You know, things like what a visitor is, what a session is, what, yes. a, what a page view is. These things are not fuzzy at the edge. 
somewhere there's an exact definition. Mm-hmm. Is he pulling something out of a mm-hmm. database? And at times, it can, these labels that we attach to the analytics in reports and so on can be very misleading. They sound like something. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people want a lot of page views. But nobody knows if they're really helping the user in the end or not. No, I was thinking more than just mm. the, the actual label. You think it says something, mm. um, like oh, time yeah. on site. Yeah, okay. Right? Mm. So you, you as mm. a UX, maybe log straight in mm. and you look and you go, oh, right, people are visit- They're spending eight minutes on our website. Mm-hmm. And they go off and, and run with that. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, so it's uh, that example, the time on site, mm. is uh, something that makes, uh, it makes intuitive sense. You know, it's, well, it's the average amount of time that people mm. spend on the website. And for a lot of practical mm. purposes, that intuitive sense is good enough. Mm. Um, when you start to peel back the layers of how it's specifically uh, defined, um, it may make more of an impact. You may care, oh, well, it doesn't include any time that they spend on the last page of their visit. Mm-hmm. And depending on your context, well, maybe that matters a whole bunch. But you know, there yeah. often y- the intuitive sense can really work. But there's other cases, something like um, like balance rate, for example, mm-hmm. where you know it pays to know like exactly what it is uh, measuring. Because um, if you don't know what it actually measures, you may think that oh, balance rate it refers to people entering a p- landing on a page and then leaving again right away. Um, well, no, mm-hmm. I mean it's that, but it's specifically entering the website on a page and then leaving again without clicking on anything by interacting yeah. exactly yes yeah. and it's yes and it's not just whether or not they go to another page but also interacting with anything on that page itself so you know it's like right. you, you maybe may the problem was solved on that page you mm-hmm. don't know yeah, ex- exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah so your intuitive mm. sense may include oh there's a lot of people yeah. in that mm. but uh, the when you learn the definition it mm. more narrowly defines it so it's uh, i think yeah you can really dig in mm. i think that's actually uh, that gets into another um, area or question about how I think um, UXers need to be better educated around analytics I- in order to design analytics into their experiences. Because you know we use it as a as a research tool, mm-hmm. but it's only as good as the implementation in oh, the yes. thing that we're we're looking at. Well, so I look I at it from this perspective: um, any any kind of design effort, you have to have some idea of whether you of how will you know if the design is working? Mm-hmm. Uh, and typically, that's going to be in some measurable way. Otherwise, that's really hard to explain to whatever powers that be in your organization. Um, and maybe that analytics is not the right tool for measuring the effectiveness of the design. But often, analytics will be a prime way of understanding, did this design change have an impact mm-hmm. or not? And you know, it's kind of scary to, to, to open yourself to that kind of accountability Mm -hmm. because often designs don't work out as intended and then you have some explaining to do but I don't know that just touches on the issue of how do we deal with uh, things experiments that don't work yeah I think absolutely you you would have your your way of knowing whether you've reached the goal with the site but then you also also have to set a goal first yes (laughs) yeah exactly but then also this um, you know making sure that we're collecting the right data to help us make better informed future choices about Mm. design so, so they might not be connected to the to the goal and the purpose of the website oh, directly, yeah. not the metric you're measuring. But I might want to know, okay, um, the kind of suppose with the not A/B testing and such, but I want to know maybe d- does that particular bit of navigation get used mm-hmm. over time, um, oh, yeah. or does this particular set of buttons get mm. used or ignored? So, so I can maybe design in analytics into the solution just oh, to yes. help me in a future 
iteration. Um, oh, yes. It, it definitely pays to think about the ways, yeah, coming up with the design for an entire page for or a set of pages. Yeah, think about how you want that thing measured. Or if you are in the happy place of your organization installing website uh, analytics for the first time on a website, mm. well, it pays mm. to be part of that team that, that's deciding how to install it. You know, the UX person should be there saying, oh, well, we want to measure these aspects of user behavior and these mm. other aspects and these other aspects because we are placed to know what is important to users, what is important to mm. the business. Mm. You know, there may mm. not be other people that are thinking that hard um, or, or thinking that concretely about specific actions on the website that support business goals. Mm. And of course, if we're there for the implementation, then we know how it actually works, which pays off down the road. Yeah, I think this is something that over the years we've we've had this about well we should UXs need to be involved early in the process uh, developers need to be involved early in the process we've even had conversations where we say about SEO guys and gals need to be involved early in the process well, I think it's an excellent point that we should also make sure we include the analytics people oh yes if, please you know in the process early mm. early on so we can we can all learn from each other and, mm. and get things set up in a way that's going to benefit everyone f further down the line and also realize I mean it's not set in stone you can always go in and change it's something you should be talking about that you should be reviewing is that it's set up in the way we want to and have those meetings about that and really formally schedule them because pe what tends to happen is you set it up and somebody looks at it once in a while and you have these PDF reports emailed and nobody really understands did, is it better or worse I mm -hmm. don't know no. <laughs> who can tell us absolutely the organization mm. is, isn't necessarily geared mm. up to, to have continuous mm. improvement when it comes to analyzing the behavior but it's also interesting because, it, I mean, it's not uh, only about the design of the website. It also can impact how the editorial team works, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. If we know what pages are the most visited or w what parts of a page that people spend more time on, or even what weekdays or times of day that it would be Im Im really good to release new content because you know that that's when people are spending time on the site. Oh, yes. Things that people mm. search for, mm. you know, mm. search, search engine keywords yeah. that bring people to the site, mm. things that people search for on the site. Mm. I mean... It's a wealth of opportunities it is. for content creators, yeah. um, from analytics. Mm -hmm. No, just knowing things about mm. your users is all around good. And we want to know everything we can about them, or we want access to as many different avenues for getting data. Yeah. So, so if I want to get started, I mean, I'm listening to the podcast, and that, that sounds really clever. How do I get started? So I taught two workshops at, at UX Lisbon, and I've taught workshops on analytics before. Mm. And one of the trickiest things about teaching a workshop on analytics is there's no uh, sandbox. There's no place to like log in and play around with data. Like You need a website of some kind, mm. and you need to install analytics of some kind. Typically, that's going to be like a Google Analytics, which mm. is free. But there, you know, there are other perfectly good tools, but obviously you want to get started with free ones. Um, and the you know the, the the biggest thing is like you could attend a workshop such as mine. I highly recommend it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> really, learning comes from doing. Yeah. R learning uh, learning comes from having real problems, real questions about user behavior, and trying to dig in. You know, so it's looking and on day to day in your day to day life at work. It's look it's 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 looking for opportunities to ask the the data questions. It's saying when you have a problem, oh. I wonder if analytics can shed any light on this as mm. part of my overall answering of the question. Yeah. And it's really through that practice of using the tools, of really digging into the data that you're going to get used to it. The mm. same way that like, if you are conducting usability testing, like you can learn about it 
you can read about it, mm. but ultimately, like moderating usability tests is something that, you know, you must work with users mm. over and over, mm. so that you really internalize how to, um, you know, how to effectively moderate any kind of research session like that. Mm. So what we're saying really is then that if you know the business goals well enough and you know what you know about your users and you, know, you like map that out you know what questions you need answering and then you can figure out okay so i have this problem what questions can be answered with the help of analytics and that's how you really get, get started because you know what questions you want answered i think that's a pretty mm -hmm. effective summary mm -hmm. it just it's all about just looking for those opportunities yeah. when you when you when you are wondering about <laughs> what people have done yeah. and what your users have done on the website yeah, it's 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 a really cool tool. Once once you start digging into it, I I can promise everybody, if if you become really used to web analytics, if you become really um, effective at using it, it will be literally the most rewarding thing you've ever done in your life. Oh, there Ooh. we go. Excellent that's, note that's to end on. Note to finish <laughs> off um, the chat. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I mean, you know, most of you know, I love the whole analytics side of of, mm. of research. It's, it's it's the bit of research that I mm. like. I do most generally, and, yeah. and I think it's excellent that that, that um, Mike's well done a book and doing workshops and trying to to highlight this mm. um, valuable tool mm. uh, for UXers. Um, and his workshop was well attended, which is a good sign, I think. Really, pro yeah. really promising mm. um, that there were so many um, that turned up. Um, and, and took part in it, um, despite the difficulties in, in maybe executing a workshop of that kind. When, like Mike said during the interview, like, yeah, there is no open sand pit for playing. Yeah. Um, maybe we could fix that somehow. Oh, let's think about that. I actually have some clients I used to work with. Mm. I still have access to their, you, their analytics. Well, yeah, exactly, <laughs> but you can't just let everyone in it in a workshop. <laughs> no. no, I mean, but I can yeah. play around. Yeah, well, just yeah. looking at data. Yeah. yeah, I suspect quite a few of us do that. Yeah. But um, yeah. <laughs> Probably shouldn't encourage people to <laughs> to open up customers' data to the public, um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's um, we talk uh, we've talked a lot of the years about um, user research and and data points and, and getting data from different sources, um, using web analytics um, or analytics in analytics in general is in many instances just as important as. You know, uh, more classic user research, mm. interview-based user mm. research, or usability testing. Mm. Um, it's um, it's 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 a very it helps you strengthen the 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 what, so you can then investigate the why. Yeah. And what some people fail to understand is that I mean, you're sit often you're sitting on a lot of data, and you're not using it, uh, or it's really simple to implement implement actually having analytics in place. Mm. Of course, there's a there's a work involved in interpreting it. But we talk so much about doing user testing and doing all that research, and sometimes it's, well, how do we know we're doing the right thing? Well, you know you're doing the right thing if you actually look at the data first and you have the correct hypotheses. Mm. Uh, I'm in a project right now where I find myself, it's a part-time project, and I, I need more data, and I'm asking where, how many people actually do uh, apply or sign up and, and, or book, book a time slot online, and, then I, and how many... Um, actually go in and rebook and they're saying they're answering with stuff like well quite a lot and mm -hmm. a fair amount and 
and, and th those are like those always aren't like answers. Those, those aren't answers. No. I can't work with that. No. I have no idea. But if I if I had the numbers, I could actually go in and tell them uh, what's going to be saving them money, what's going to be eliminating the most frustrations for the most number of users, stuff like that. And yeah. bringing those numbers to actually to the stakeholders and to supervisors, they will start listening to you, and you'll get the mandate to actually do more stuff. It becomes it becomes an mm. informed, enlightened um, debate or or conversation yeah. rather than pure guessing. Mm. And we spend far much time as UXers or developing mm. uh, various uh, services, guessing. I mean, in one in one of my projects this um, this spring, um, uh, we've we've had an awful lot of focus on the start page um, of a mm. new website. <laughs> a ridiculous amount of focus yeah. on the start page, and I've tried like hell to kind mm. of quash the focus mm. on the start page mm. and in the end I did that by pulling out some uh, analytics yeah. which showed that um, basically oh, about 17% of visitors um, went through the start page at some point Yeah. so, so the vast majority, 80% of the traffic on mm. this site um, didn't touch the start page and then <laughs> when you fast. segmented it between yeah. desktop and non-desktop mobile in particular mm. It gets even mm. more crazy mm. um, that we are looking at like the desktop design comps for a web, you know, for mm. a website when the vast majority of people are going to be looking mm. at other content on the site with their mobiles. Yeah. It, so you can use so you can use analytics in both directions. You can use it as a hypothesis generator to bring things up to the mm. surface that you can investigate further with other tools and mm. with other data methods and uh, research methods. Mm. And you can do it the other way around. You can take you can take presumptions, uh, guesses mm. that are coming up in your in your design process, and try and validate them with yeah. data, um, or even um, story mapping. Yeah, you can you can validate a, a story map, or you can mm. or a slice of a story mm. map as we've talked about with Adrian earlier, that, and see how does that look today in our tool? Can right. we can we see if there's any kind of similarities or points or? Mm. You know, in fact, you can do, I suppose yeah, you can do even both way around. You can you can maybe start developing a story map. From oh yeah, of course. Um, your journey in because it's all integrated, and that's what UX people fail to understand. You need all of this data to understand users. If you're not learning new stuff every day, then I mean, j your job isn't any fun. And also, what was really troublesome when I heard you talking about when you were at uh, the workshop uh, with Adrian was when people UXers have assumptions oh, about yes. how pe how users are. Yeah. That's not your job as oh. a UXer. Don't have these assumptions. Yeah. Don't argue and say that you you know the right thing about the users. Yes, you may have experience about something, but everybody has different experiences. Your job is to actually f go through the data, do your research, and find out what the, the real users of the site, yeah. what their uh, experience is like, not yours. Yeah. Now you're right. In that yeah. workshop, there was, mm. okay, we're in a forced environment mm. where mm. we have to team up mm. and produce something under mm. a very limited amount of time. But I was, I was quite surprised by how um, agitated, how really kind of... Um, not aggressive, but yeah. how forceful mm. uh, a lot of people were trying to push their mm. opinions in these workshop environments. Mm. Um, whereas you're, you're quite mm. right, then you know you you need to be aware of the fact that it's not your opinion that counts. You need mm. to validate it somehow. I know you're talking about morning routines and what you do yes. in the morning and when you actually take a shower and when you brush your teeth and in what order and, yeah. and, and what can be skipped, what uh, can be merged, right. what can and be moved. People were arguing about that yeah. rather than having the insight that. There's a lot of differences here. How do we find which is the most common mm. with data? Yeah, <laughs> it's very interesting. You know, like, yeah. yeah, moving something. Mm. I mean, I, I I tried to think it was try tried to place mm. um, drying your hair mm. 
I tried to place that in a grouping of bathroom activities. Mm. Okay, I'm making the presumption that it is commonly a, 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 an activity in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. But there was um, one person in my team that adamantly was saying, no, never ever does that in the bathroom. Mm. So we kind of, I suppose in some ways we've both been stubborn, saying, well, that's clearly a bathroom thing. Well, that's clearly not a bathroom thing. Mm. Can't we compromise by putting it in the bathroom thing, at least <laughs> testing that? Yeah. Um, fascinating. Washing your face was another Washing example. Your face, I, I yes. remember that. That's Somebody, right. A guy who refused to that wouldn't um, he couldn't miss that in his morning routine. Even mm -hmm. if the house was on fire, basically, mm -hmm. he had to do that. And he always did it in some strange place that you didn't know he about. He did it in a different sink. I don't really know. Exactly never in the was. bathroom. It was never in the bathroom. No. That was that was <laughs> made quite clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so people have these assumptions, Man. and so sure people have assumptions, but as a UXer, your job is to actually try not to focus on the things that. Are your experience, but listen and listen and listen and listen to others. You, everyone don't has, force your opinion on other people. Everyone has a mental model. Yeah, even as a UXer, mm. you have mm. a mental model mm. of the thing you're analysing, and the skill there mm. is putting your or, or realising when your mental model is mm. colouring your research yeah. into a different mental model, someone else's mental model. So if you find yourself in a meeting saying stuff about this is what the users want with ha without having data to back that up, then Take a step back and, and uh, <laughs> figure out what you're really there for. A tip there. Um, if you can't get beyond that argument, because it comes mm. up a lot, it's kind of you suggest something and they go and you get the answer will be, oh, mm. well, um, our users never do that. Mm. Then you can say, well, can we put that down then as a candidate for user testing? Yeah. And you, you create, a, create your own backlog of, of uh, usability testing things that like like you that. can then draw on later. Yes. Or analyzing some other way. Yeah. Ooh, uh. <laughs> I think we can probably wrap up now. I think so. But um, before you all stop listening, um, thanks to Loop11 for sponsoring um, this episode of UX Podcast. And make sure you go to um, loop11.com slash UX Podcast for your free usability test. And I will actually be doing a Loop11 test this summer, which is cool. Oh, there yeah. we go. Yeah. Is it free? Of course it's free. Because you went to Loop 11. I went to UX Podcast. Right. You can find um, mm. show notes for this mm. um, show and both our interviews um, on uxpodcast.com. Uh, you can also sign up for our backstage mailing list there where we give you a little bit more background information in some of these shows and um, um, pre-hand pre it. No, that's not what am I saying. Pre no, what's it called? When you give information in advance. I can't think of a oh. phrase. Well, you can get stuff. You get stuff in advance. Is what you, say, you right. said it. Yeah, I think Swedish was trying to bubble out of my head then. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, you can subscribe to us um, via iTunes, Stitcher, and almost everything. And we're everywhere. Yeah, as a UX podcast. That's right. <laughs> Remember to keep moving, and see you on the other side. Mm -hmm.